Greetings, listeners, and welcome to On The Spectrum Podcast, a show that explores the many complexities and diversities of being on the spectrum. We are your hosts, David and Lorena. Hello, everybody. And today we're going to be discussing with our guests the process of diagnosing autism. Hello, Kat and Holly, and thank you very much for joining us on our third episode of On The Spectrum Podcast. Would you like to start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourselves? Um, do you want to start with you, Kat? Of course. So um, my name's Kat Goodsell, um, and I'm a consultant forensic and chartered psychologist. And I specialise in autism diagnostics alongside many other um, diagnoses as well as therapy. Um, my background is forensic mental health, prison service, um, quite a while ago um, and then also worked within CAMS um, for diagnoses um, and more recently I've been uh, in private practice and working in autism diagnostics um, and comorbidities as well as expert witness work for criminal court cases. Wow. Holly. I know. Holly. Hi. Um, so my name's Holly Armitage Brown. I'm currently an assistant psychologist working alongside Kat. Um, so I've recently graduated from my master's degree, which I did in forensic psychology. And prior to that, I did my undergraduate degree in psychology and criminology. And hoping to do my PhD soon. That's sort of the next stage. Oh, great. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. We're just going to be talking about um, uh, the diagnosis of autism and kind of like the process of it. Um, so do you want to kick off with a question? Yeah, so we know that there have been some changes in the criteria lately um, and we have like things like the, the Asperger's syndrome came in the DSM-4 and now when they review and created the DSM-5, that um, syndrome was disappeared and everything was included within the autism umbrella wasn't it so could you explain us how that does does it work for you guys in practice and why all these changes and how that comes that comes along so when it was changed um they decided it would be better to have it to an all-inclusive under one umbrella um which would then aid people not only in diagnosis but also moving things forward in terms of care afterwards as a clinician, um, when they first made the changes, I wasn't particularly on board with the changes um, in terms of how their perception was. And actually, 10 years on, I still feel that differentiation is really important mm -hmm. because if we look at autism and we look at autism spectrum, if we look at um, PDD, NOS, which is pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified, which also goes into atypical autism we look at asperger's um, as it was once known um, we look at Rett syndrome um, they're all very different and how they impact on people is very very different so as a clinician even though they have removed this it's still something that can be helpful to consider these differentiations even when we're diagnosing now okay have you seen any difference or how is it's affecting the, the clients or people actually so are they taking on board the change or they still want to say I'm Asperger or I am autistic in the main most people would like the differentiation okay. so a lot of people who come and have assessments with us um in, in private practice or whether it's when I was contracting for the NHS and and when I had contracts to go and deliver um autism assessments for the NHS there was very much this feel that, particularly with adults, if it's autism or autism spectrum, 
other people, perhaps their employers, aren't going to understand the differences between how they were functioning, okay. which was more in line with what they felt as being Asperger's, okay. to what the typical perspective or the stereotypical perspective is of autism, because they're so diverse. So a lot of people have struggled with um, coming to, not coming to terms with it essentially, but being able to ask whether it's okay if they still use Asperger's, which under ICD-10 is is more of a possibility. Mm-hmm. Under the DSM, it's not. Okay. Um, so quite often I will say to people, if we look at the diagnosis... I will always tailor everything to the individual anyway because everyone's unique, whether they are on the spectrum or they're not. So it's always tailored. And I will say to them that if you feel more comfortable saying, yes, I've got autism spectrum, however, it's felt to be more of the Asperger's type because it is very different in in how it was in the DSM-4, then that should be absolutely acceptable. Fair enough. Makes sense. So it's almost like um, you say it was up to the individual whether they come under the umbrella term or whether they'd prefer to have the, that specific diagnosis. Is that, sort is that kind of, of what you're saying? Or? So it would be more in line of if we do the autism assessment and it's felt from my opinion or a clinician's mm-hmm. opinion um, when we're doing the diagnostic assessments that actually their history, their presentation, obviously delivering the gold standard assessments is absolutely essential. Delivering a multitude of other assessments, in, in my opinion, is really, really beneficial. So you get a really comprehensive view of this person. If, as a clinician, you feel that perhaps they, they may have met that threshold for Asperger's and they want to know that, then it can be helpful to let them know sure. that if we were diagnosing back in 2013, then yes then you will use those tools to clarify and make that uh, <coughs> differentiation between what is that differentiation not diagnostically but yeah. more in a qualitative way of just saying well yes if we were diagnosing then you may have thre- met threshold for asperger's we're not diagnosing under the dsm with asperger's but it's more comfortable quite often if, if they would have met threshold for asperger's that they can explain that to their employer because it's so different in that way but they would have to in the clinician's perspective meet that threshold um, because there is that disparity between oh I see so it's almost they they have to have that in order to get sort of the the right support or the specific things that they're going to need support with they could do because it is it is different sure very different Mm. Um, and when we look at the stereotypical view of autism quite often and forgive me if this is very sort of wide-ranging for for what people say to me. Um, A lot of people say, well, our view of autism spectrum or or autism essentially is either Rain Man or, which is a very old film now, um, or someone who's non-verbal and doesn't have that ability to communicate or they see it also as a learning disability, which obviously it isn't. So having that differentiation in in my opinion is is really important which is why whenever you're assessing you have to treat people very uniquely and you assess that person not as a collective because you've been trained to do it but because that person needs to have their assessment tailored to them and it doesn't matter whether that also includes cognitive assessments adaptive behavior assessments it has to be tailored to that individual to make sure you get the best outcome for them because yeah, even yeah. when we're in the umbrella, there is still a 
unique for who they are. It's, it, won't, it won't be two people with autism the same. And I think we see this every yeah, day. We see this every day at, at work, the school. Like, uh, every, we, every child has an individual timetable, don't they? And yeah, it's um, like they are. It's all they tailored are towards themselves. Their needs. Like that uniqueness Absolutely. is that what we don't want to lose, and sometimes we forget. And also, I want to say that yes, I think many people have that stereotype of what is autism, and they see that disability attached to autism. Um, and I think we have a conversation not long ago with someone that is perfectly capable to carry on his life, and when he went. To, to do an interview at work that were like treating him like he was disabled. And he's like, I'm not disabled. So autism doesn't mean disability. Autism means that I understand life or the world in a different way. That's it. Doesn't mean that I'm not able to. Uh, so I think that is more common than we think. So probably that's why, that, that's what we are trying to, to break those stereotypes and those, um, to break those barriers of like widen the, the view of what autism means absolutely and that's something that i think particularly over the last sort of yeah. 14 years that i've been specializing in autism and i was a teacher before mm. so <laughs> teaching the individual is absolutely essential um but in the last sort of 14 years i've worked in autism it's it is so essential to actually support the individual and when you're assessing it has to be assessing the individual and one of the things that and it doesn't really matter what age the person is for this um when parents come or, or teachers ask questions I always try and explain it that autism for me and when we look at autism compared to neurotypical it's like having a windows computer an apple computer or phone and mm-hmm. you know phone yeah, android, android and, yeah. yeah rubbish with technology <laughs> and both fundamentally they do the same thing there's yeah. just different operating systems yeah. Yeah. and if there's different operating systems it doesn't mean that someone is going to be disadvantaged we just need to think about things in a slightly different way mm-hmm. to help the person who's either neurotypical or someone that is within the spectrum yeah, let's say absolutely. Yeah. Um, they're, they're capable of doing the same thing but they may have sensory um, issues or something that may yeah. sort of uh, get in the way but once those are removed they're perfectly capable just as anyone else to do the task at hand absolutely yeah. and the time when we see things being a little bit more tricky is when there is a comorbidity mm. so obviously having a background in forensic mental health um, I used to work a lot with um, autism wards essentially in secure mental health Mm. um and that would be very different because we would see a lot of comorbidities we would have autism with a learning disability autism with psychosis um in that context it's something that needs a lot more support Mm -hmm. not just because autism spectrum's there it's also because there's there's a fundamental sort of learning disability or there's psychosis so in that respect it is different. However, autism spectrum, particularly when people don't have additional needs, and we always have to remember that neurotypical people can also have additional needs, such as learning disabilities, psychosis, anxiety, depression, personality disorders, and we can go through a whole entire list. It doesn't make any difference. It's just a different way of accommodating any particular needs. That's it. So how early you can diagnose, make a diagnosis of autism and how so that is reliable, so more it or less? It differs from clinician to clinician. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was contracted to the NHS, I contracted to paediatrics in London for a while, um, years ago now. Um, and that was from 18 months, 18 months up to five years for that particular service. Mm-hmm. Um 
I am of the view that that is incredibly young. I thought that was quite a young in my opinion Mm. because the developmental stages that children go through from sort of six months to 12 months to 18 months to two years are huge Mm. absolutely huge and when you see that development happen and you've had someone that's diagnosed 18 months because someone's not talking and you think well actually a lot of children don't talk because they all develop differently so Mm -hmm. how about just waiting a little bit longer that can be really beneficial in my opinion I fully appreciate lots of clinicians will do things very differently my preference is sort of five years because the diagnostic criteria if we look at the algorithm the the main algorithm for the ADIR is four to five years so if we wait to five years but we put accommodations in for anyone younger in case there is autism there that would relate to it in schools, etc., then that's helpful. That's proactive, just in case. Absolutely, right. being proactive is the most essential thing. Mm-hmm. But if we look at waiting till five, and we can do the ADOS, we can do the ADIR, we can do all the other forms, we've got the school perspective, I think that makes a huge difference. If, and children, I suppose by then you've gathered up enough evidence as well, because the nurseries would have gathered evidence, so the school, and then you've got, yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah. Absolutely. So you've got more more sort of conclusive, like you can conclusively say there's something going on here. You can. And that's, I appreciate my opinion. There are lots of opinions out there. Um, But in my opinion, it's, I feel it's better to wait until five, unless something is very, very, very starkly clear cut. So I'm not saying I haven't diagnosed under five, I have, but it would have to be incredibly clear cut. And that would be very much the... um, body mannerisms, the complex body mannerisms that also go hand in hand with autism spectrum, very clear cut, non-verbal or particular sounds that are being made, the body mannerisms are often spinning in circles, dropping things from a particular height repetitively, which typically children don't do consistently, but they will do for a period of time, which is why it has to have that longevity in order to gather that evidence, because without that evidence and you diagnose someone who hasn't got it, that's a lot more damaging to somebody than waiting that little bit longer to because diagnose. Thinking about the early stage in in children, if you think of a kid that is 16 months old now, uh, David has a, a child as well, three. Uh, three. So they, how they play, they play in quite repetitive schemas, that they, like they play in schemas that they have, and even Montessori talk about that, it's sometimes quite repetitive. So if like for someone, if you take that out of context, can be something like, oh, it's autism, it could be autism. And it's like, no, it's just how they play and how they understand the world that is around them. And then that will evolve to something else. But for, to, to allow that evolution, you need to do this first. Uh, if we go to the 18 months, and I can't remember when I studied the degree, they were saying even between 12 and 18, which for me was quite early, but yeah, I remember the teacher and it was really close to the medicine side. And it was like between 12 and 18, these things that you can see already, that they are there. Uh, child, when you do this and doesn't want to come to you. And I was like, but re- really? I mean, uh, it's, it's those tiny, kind of little tiny, things tiny, that we're not taking things out of context or they can be taken out of context really quickly by professionals and parents. And the only thing that we are doing is scaring people and putting labels that they are no need that early. Parents worry. 
and a rightly lot. so. I have three children. We do, we do. <laughs> we, we, we worry a lot. And we look for things and, and even as a psychologist, you know, when I had my first, I was like, oh, this, this, this. Because obviously I was working in autism at the, at the time. Tell, 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 about, yeah. tell us about it. Yeah. <laughs> a decade working <laughs> You do. And my son had delayed speech. Mm. He doesn't stop talking now, does he? he no. <laughs> and he isn't on the spectrum. But if someone had thought about looking at the time, he lined up cars. Loved cars. Yeah. <laughs> he would be very repetitive in certain words. But that's the only speech he wanted to use because everyone spoke for him. There you go. So it's like out of context, things can go really wrong really quickly, do they? And there's a natural regression is what I was, uh, because I work in the speech and language therapy department and they said that there's a natural, like for a few weeks, your your child will regress back to being non-verbal for a little while. And that's a natural thing. And I think a lot of people will probably worry at that stage when that kind of thing happens. But you have to sort of, like you said, kind of take note, but then um, carry on and just see through that developmental process. Absolutely. Particularly if they've got older siblings or parents who are very communicative. I think most parents have probably been guilty of, would you like that juice? Let me give you the juice. So you're not allowing the child (laughs) to say, I'd really like some juice. Or would you like some chips? Oh, here you go. So you're not allowing that sort of development. So I think, oh, I don't actually need to talk. You're just going to give me what I want, (laughs) which a lot of children do. And if we think about my daughter, who's 10 now, she's ADHD, sensory processing disorder, dyspraxia and dyslexia. And if I looked back at when she was three, mm-hmm. absolutely three, um, she didn't play, had no interest in playing whatsoever. She would rather watch television, very passive. Her speech was quite delayed. Her brother was talking for her by that point. Convincing. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. That's really good. <laughs> but the sensory side was so apparent. And I knew she had sensory processing difficulties from when she was under 12 months. Because it was so apparent. What she was one of the red flags for that? She would only eat porridge for about eight, eight months. I see. So textures of food and things were... Oh, yes. Rise. And bright light. She'd be like... Mm. Oh, I see. So, yeah. She was very sensory and noisy. She'd be like... Mm. So, with her... If I'd taken her to someone at three, she wouldn't have spoken to anybody. She wouldn't have engaged. She wouldn't have pointed. She wouldn't have directed people. She could. She was ticking many boxes that we were talking about, wouldn't they? Like, they would have said and gave her, gave her that, you know, is probably that was incorrect. Absolutely. Because if I tried to play peekaboo with her, because she processes visually so quickly, I was boring. <laughs> So me going peekaboo, she'd be like, and on to the next thing. <laughs> so all of those things that we look at for the tiny tots actually were probably relevant for her. She is an autism spectrum, but she's ADHD and a whole host of other little bits going on too. So I fully get where you're coming from in, in terms of what you were saying, that you've got to be so careful when you are diagnosing that we have it for a prolonged period, not just over oh, three months. This has been happening. Yes, yes. Because a friend of mine said that um, he, he went in for um, for an assessment for his child, and uh, they took him away for about ninety minutes, and then brought him back, and then said, "Oh, he might be on the spectrum," or, or something along those lines. But his argument was, "Well, you've only taken him for ninety minutes. How how do you know?" <laughs> you know, and what you're saying makes more sense, in, in my opinion, anyway, is that you gather up the evidence. 
so that you can you can be quite conclusive of what your what your findings are absolutely and gathering up the evidence is really important so if we look at the diagnostic process and it, it again it depends what individual clinicians want to do I've always only ever used gold standard assessments because apparently I'm very pedantic <laughs> um, <laughs> So the ADOS, ADIR, um, the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, um, beforehand now, the second version, and then the Autism Diagnostic Interview Revised. Mm -hmm. So the ADIR assessment can take anywhere from sort of two hours to five hours to complete. Longest one I did was seven hours. It's very long. Um, And that's to gather a full developmental history. Now, obviously, that can be done when someone's five for the four to five period. It can be done younger than that which will gather some evidence but obviously going with what we said a few minutes ago sometimes we do need to wait that little bit longer then the ADOS is a very structured assessment that is shorter absolutely it can be up to an hour and the ADOS is done with the child but you also need to have nursery perspective you need to have the school's perspective if we're doing assessments we do the ADOS too a separate clinician um, will do the ADIR the school have a social responsiveness scale and a MIGDUS teacher version. So we have the qualitative and the quantitative. Mm-hmm. The parents will also have the SRST and they will have a sensory profile. Okay. And then we also look at the Beck Youth Inventory because it's really important to look at possible comorbidity of anxiety, low mood, anger, disruptive behaviour, mm-hmm. um, that side of things too. And we also look at the adaptive behaviour system for children if if we feel there's something else going on mm-hmm. and also for adults so you're getting a, a much more well-rounded comprehensive picture of somebody um the adi and the ados are the, are the gold standard ones the others are just other ones which complement i feel complement it sure. because they're quite intensive assessments and we do have if there's any question at all if the ados has been done and everything else has been done and we have any questions whatsoever we can also do a migdus with a child as well mm-hmm. um just to gather further information okay. so it's it's much more intensive than just taking a child away for 90 minutes yeah sure, yeah. sure. um now that you're talking about red flags um what red flags would you say to parents that there are things that they need to look into and if those appear is something that we might need to move a step forward what age would you be considering um what age do you want <laughs> like for instance let's say four or five years old so let's say till four or five things can move forward and um they can take with a pinch of salt okay. but if they are four or five yeah. and those things appeared what are those things so for you five, if we're thinking particularly sort of the latter end of four to five mm-hmm. If we're seeing delayed echolalia, which is a child repeating a sentence or a phrase, but it has to be verbatim, mm-hmm. several hours can even be days or even weeks later, and that can be something someone said to them, or it can be something they've heard on television, but it's the exact phrase and they repeat it out of context, mm-hmm. that can be a sign. Okay. Um, stereotyped utterances, so for example, all traffic lights are pink. We know they're not, <laughs> but if it's a statement that's completely out of context that makes no sense in that situation and it's something that they just say, that can be too, if we're looking at the speech particularly. Is that because the understanding is not there? 
and they're just repeating it can what's, be it, or their okay. favorite color might be pink oh, I see. Oh, okay. right. <laughs> it can be lots of different mm. things um but it, it it's definitely around something that is an unusual thing for a child to say um if we look at um speech being delayed sort of towards the five-year-old domain really um if they're requiring speech and language therapy but it isn't around um subtle pronunciation or they have a lisp I've got a lisp I still have a lisp I've had one since I was born well not born since I was speaking you know it's more than that it's that speech and language that's actually developing their speech so if they need that at five then yes I'd probably say look at that if you're seeing hand flapping finger mannerisms it can be really subtle I'm exaggerating them slightly but it can be very subtle things are probably like it will clarify because we are doing the podcast it can be audio but also we are in YouTube so if parents are seeing us it will be probably a way to clarify yes. why you're talking about <laughs> Thank absolutely you. <laughs> so those sorts of behaviors the hand flapping this one particularly that can be quite a sensory mm-hmm. therapeutic one um so if we're seeing that absolutely that can be definitely a sign so those repetitive behaviors spinning in a circle with um just but it's not spinning in circles in running it's spinning, 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 spinning. So very spinning close circle. Or themselves, no, themselves. But they, they're normally looking for the visual stimulation. So for example, if they're looking at this, they'll be spinning, spinning, spinning. But they'll be looking for that visual stimulation to almost make that become something different. Okay. Um, obviously, with sensory processing disorder, it is a standalone condition as well. It doesn't always come with autism or ADHD or other conditions. So it can be standalone. But it can be also important when combined with other areas of of any concern. Um, School is a big one, so not approaching other children, not watching other children. So some children on spectrum will actually watch other children, they'll observe, Mm -hmm. but they won't approach them. They'll just be standing there watching. I appreciate that can also be part of other conditions, but that can be something. And if someone comes over and says, do you want to come and play? Do you want to come and play with them? And they're sort of, oh, no. Yes, it can be an anxiety-based, but it can also be a sign that they don't want to, and quite often they'll walk away. So they won't communicate it, it'll be sort of a walk away. Or if another child approaches them, and they're not interested, they're not communicating, and they're just happy doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. And quite often children can be happy doing their own thing. It's often parents, we worry because we want them to be doing other stuff. (laughs) But they're happy doing their own thing. Then that can be a sign as well, even if other people are approaching Birthday parties are a classic one. So, yeah, going to a birthday party and a child hiding behind, wanting to escape in the corner, hand over ears, that can also be a, a sign that there might be something a little bit happening there. Something is different, yeah. Definitely. But you could appreciate it could also be anxiety at the same time as well. Anxiety. So it's, it's kind of like you, you pick up the red flag, but obviously it just goes towards this portfolio that you're putting together. Absolutely. So not, you're not, it's not like a definite in stone. No. But it's worth taking note if these, these yes. kind of things happen. It's looking for that differential diagnosis as well as a clinician, absolutely. But just recording these things, but it would be a long-term not just a one-off or wasn't feeling well that day so therefore this has happened so it'll be a long-term sort of difficulty that's happening um, and a few of them diff- probably won't be something oh, isolated like no one to go to a yes. birthday party at, 
one day will be something that has been repeated alongside other things that you mentioned probably absolutely routine difficulties with change Mm. lots of children are adapted adaptable lots of children aren't adaptable but particularly with, with autism spectrum you will have children who they will want to do this and it will be why 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 if it changes because they're struggling to process or they'll go very quiet and they'll withdraw but you might still see them have what is classed as a meltdown mm-hmm. because they're struggling with that change and that's often with autism something they don't want to do and something they do want to do so children are very clever we know they're very clever mm-hmm. when they don't want to do something it's like oh brilliant i don't have to do that so i'm not going to get cross over it lots of children with autism spectrum if it's something they don't want to do and it changes it's that change that causes the difficulty not the fact that well, I don't want to do it so I get to go and play, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's the quality of play, it's the quality of those interactions. So are they demanding that situation? Does everyone have to follow what they're saying? So for example, um, a classic one would be trains or cars. The yellows go here, the reds go here, the blues go here. If you switch it round, what happens? If you see a child yellow yellow and you put it over here and yellow and you can see that distress mm. that's also possibly symptomatic how would you say that the diagnostic process for autism normally unfolds for individuals and for their families it varies <laughs> um do you want me to talk about it generally or in terms of what i would do specifically probably what would you do what would yeah. i do um, again, I'm called quite pedantic. Um, I like to think of it being more <laughs> thorough, but hey, that's what my husband said, I'm very pedantic. Um, I always feel if you're going to do something, you've got to do it to the best of what you can to get the best outcome for a, a family, for a child. Just being a, a good professional then. I hope so. I okay. hope so. <laughs> Let's do the I right really end there. So. Yeah. <laughs> so how I would do it. We do the gold standard assessments, we do the ADOS, the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, we do the ADIR, the Autism Diagnostic Interview Revised. Um, Both of those give us a wealth of information, both observation and then obviously interviewing parents or a guardian or or someone who's known that individual really well. Um, We then do further assessments um, with school, we do school observations if needs be as well, we give the school qualitative and quantitative measures um, which allow us to work out a little bit more about what's going on for that person, I say a little bit, quite a lot actually for that person, Um, we always look at sensory, we always look at sort of the mental health side as well just in case because there's recommendations that need to be made if that person needs support mm-hmm. um, we look at adaptive behavior so daily living how they're functioning whether there's any struggles within that as well um, we look at cognitive um, if that's helpful too generally that's if there's a concern in an adult with a learning disability then a cognitive should be a prerequisite to be fair, um, particularly under nice guidelines. Um, and with a child, a cognitive can be helpful, particularly around processing, particularly around working memory, 
verbal comprehension just in case we can see any spiky profiles. Um, can be an indicator of dyslexia, of course, but just looking at those spiky profiles as well if there's any concerns in school about the accessing academics too. Um, so a well-rounded assessment should be undertaken. It does take time, and I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, we can't gather this information in two days. Mm-hmm. It takes us time to gather it, it takes us time to formulate it, it takes us time to work through everything, and sometimes we do need further information. So having an assessment that's done in that way is is my preference. Okay. So when they have the diagnosis, what is the next step? The next step, it does depend on age, um, very much so. So if um, a child is having a diagnosis, then it's recommendations for school and also for home. Um, it can be recommendations also for CAMS if they're under CAMS and what they might wish to consider as well obviously when we we look at autism diagnoses we always look at the differential diagnosis so someone might come for an autism assessment um, but we also or I also look at whether there might be ADHD there whether there might be um, sensory difficulties which obviously are are quite comorbid with autism spectrum We do look at the mental health side as well. Um, if we're looking at that side, then it's making those recommendations. Do they need therapy? Looking at attachment difficulties as well, um, particularly if someone's been adopted or in foster care. Um, I was going to ask whether the environment sort of comes into it as well, whether there's so. something, um, if, if you've got a house full, for example, or, or things like that, that might, uh, would, would they exhibit behaviours that would be red flags, maybe if they're in an environment they're not comfortable with at home? Absolutely. So it can exacerbate some of that symptomology um, in certain contexts, definitely. So it's worth looking into that area just to rule it out and say, oh, well, if you change this at home, then maybe you know, these behaviours might stop um, potentially. Mm. Yes. And that's why trauma is a really important area to look at, because there's so many crossovers between autism spectrum, trauma, attachment difficulties so it really depends on the individual i'm an emdr practitioner as well so i specialize in trauma as well um so having that understanding is really important Mm -hmm. because getting an accurate interpretation for a better word for that person is is important for their well-being and also moving forward so those recommendations are based around a, a really comprehensive assessment of what we feel i feel the team my team feels there's a lot of bodies like involved in this and a lot of um different uh different well different facilitators absolutely definitely which is why particularly children's assessments should be done by an mdt so you don't just have one so the next step essentially would be that all these other all these other parties get involved and um try and have this holistic sort of um approach or view of this individual absolutely it's taking those individual parts coming together and saying well this is what was felt here, this is what was felt here, this is what was felt here, where do we go from here? And quite often it, it, it does match in terms of information. Mm-hmm. Obviously it doesn't always match. So then it's, we will then look, well, within our practice, mm-hmm. we will always then look, well, why is it not matching? What do we need to do? So it depends on who's delivered the ADIR. So it's come to a point sometimes where, um, quite recently, um, our ADIR practitioner who's been delivering ADRs for years and years and years and has worked for CAMS for years um, previously delivered the ADIR. I did the ADOS too. Another psychologist did the initial consultation and there wasn't an agreement there between the parents. 
So Holly's ADIR trained as well. So she did another ADIR. And our other ADIR practitioner, who'd already done that one, asked more questions from the original parents so we could actually ascertain what was going on. So it's going beyond what's right in front of you and gathering more information. So is that a lot of what you guys do as well? Is like these when these conflicts arrive, you have to sort of like come up with uh, some kind of agreeable um, direction to go with. That's my preference. Mm. And I know that's not how a lot of people do it. It's a yes or no for autism um, when they're doing these diagnoses. I think because, and I might be wrong, I think because I'm a forensic psychologist, I'm very evidence-led. And because I do a lot of criminal court cases for autism, ADHD, trauma, personality disorders, mm-hmm. all the way through mental health, to psychopathy I've just been very lucky in my background and, and experience to be able to specialize in all of these areas mm-hmm. I like to try and find out what is happening for someone if I can and obviously when we look at sort of attachment theory which is another area I work a lot within too then if we can ascertain what's going on to help somebody for me that's really important I think saying to someone no it's not autism spectrum off you go that can be such a harsh reality for that person because they don't know where to go next. And it's not saying that I can resolve it straight away because I won't be able to, but it might be, for example, um, for court purposes, I will diagnose ADHD. I'm trained to diagnose it. I'm trained in diva and et cetera. For children, I won't, um, and I won't privately, purely because I'm not a medical doctor. I can't prescribe medication. And obviously ADHD is medication-based. So... In that situation where I feel it's not autism spectrum, and as a team we feel it isn't, then I will refer to psychiatry. We'll do the Connors forms or the CARS forms because that's fair to do. Mm -hmm. And then we'll refer to psychiatry um, and refer to if they want, we can recommend somebody, if they'd rather seek their own person. So we'll always try and give them a direction in which to go. So we're talking about the age of four or five. So we are talking about an early diagnosis all the time. So why is that important, how that reflects within the individual? What is the impact of having an early diagnosis? Because we know that sometimes people live with autism without knowing that they're autistic. And then actually when they realize that they're autistic or they find out, it's really late. And it's like bringing light to their lives because they click on like, oh, so now I understand why all of this happen or why I do how I do or what how I talk why I talk you know like it's like an explanation of many things so why is that early diagnosis key it does vary to be fair Mm -hmm. so if we look at autism spectrum and we know it's definitely there Mm -hmm. four to five it can be so important educationally um, to get that help in place to get an EHCP as soon as possible, to make sure their, their educational needs are met, their well-being needs are met, that they're getting that support in terms of um, groups, social groups at school, social stories, storyboarding, all of those things can be really helpful to help children develop certain skills that perhaps haven't come naturally to them when they're very young. For parents, it's the same. So it's helping children when they're really young to um, learn that they might just need that little bit of support to be able to make friends, to be able to look at things in a way where their friend, for example, 
doesn't want to play the game they want to play. Mm-hmm. But they really want to play that game and they're not going to talk to anyone unless they play that game, so they walk off. So it's being able to help children and say, well, actually, we do need to try and look at things in a slightly different way because theory of mind essentially isn't something that many people on the spectrum really do have naturally mm-hmm. it's something that has to be learned so giving that sort of perspective and if we do that young that can be really really beneficial for someone in friendships for mental health because a lot of people say particularly the older they are but I feel different I felt different all of my life is there something wrong with me mm-hmm. and your heart just breaks because it's not there's something wrong with somebody it's just that they haven't felt that they fit in with this person and they haven't felt they fit in with people in the main. Mm. So it isn't about them not fitting in, it's about them understanding that actually they're okay as they are. If we can start that young, it makes a massive difference. Sure. Mm. So it's like their well-being, their happiness and their self-esteem and things that it, yeah. that, that kind of stuff will affect. Absolutely. So, so getting that in early is going to help with that kind of thing so they don't get to the point where they think like, well, why am I so different? Yeah. Absolutely. And also... I think it's really important that some children really don't want to go and socialise. And parents encouraging, taking children. Off we go, we're going to socialise over here and we're going to go and do this and go and play with this person. Off we go to this party and children are like, oh, I don't want to do this. It's about helping parents know that actually their children are happy doing their own thing. It's not the child that's unhappy, it's the parent worrying the child's unhappy because they're not engaging in what they perceive as I think people tend to compare a lot so I don't know even your experience but I have this a lot where when my my son was born everyone was comparing oh but his cousin does this and this happens and you know and I just think um that's just something that is natural like you said people are just worrying um and just and almost looking out for these red flags like constantly rather than just engaging with the child as they are So, guys, we're talking about comparing. And I think for us parents, it's normal that we are always, even when we don't want to do it. We end up comparing end up uh, what, like, what stage they're at. Yeah, yeah my son is not doing that yeah, still. But then or we talk, oh, it's even like with the teeth. Oh, how, how many teeth do your son have? Like, how's, that, how's that important? It's not really important. Um, so even to that stage, I have that kind of question, which is absolutely fine. But sometimes leads to difficult situations, especially for those parents that they realize. Um, because when I did a degree, the first thing that they tell you, parents know their children absolutely well that's the best people you can talk to so you realize and pick up really quickly that actually something is different we're not going to say wrong we're going to say different so how do you think or from your experience and perspective how parents leave all of this process like since they realize that something is different they start comparing their children with others through going to they don't want to go to the birthday parties we go to the birthday parties and we end up having tantrums and then all the children looking at, all the parents looking at. So we end up not being invited to any of them because this is a process as well for the family, isn't it? Um, so how you see from your perspective all of this from the family point of view? So how the families live all of this? So you're absolutely right, parents do compare. They really do. And I would love to say that I never did it. 
I did. <laughs> All three of mine. <laughs> because you just do. Mm. And it's a natural thing. And it isn't just your own children. You'll have other parents say, well, my child's doing this at this age. And my child's doing this. And you're thinking, okay, this is great. Mm. My child is just about Not starting yet. to crawl. <laughs> it does happen. And I think it's a natural thing for parents to do. It isn't always helpful because actually children are unique and they all meet their milestones at different times. Mm -hmm. And whether that's speech, whether it's bladder control, bowel control, whether it's walking, they all meet them at different times. And I think if you have one child, you tend to see some advancement in some areas for that child. Second one, sometimes you see a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more. Third one, sometimes the other two are doing so much for them they don't actually want to do anything <laughs> except be waited on hand and foot, like my third one. Um, so in that sort of context, it is very much about knowing your child, comparing them to other children. I know why parents do it. I really do. And it isn't always helpful because getting to know the individual sort of needs of your child, what they're responding to, will be much more helpful if there's any concerns moving forward particularly if they're going through an assessment definitely and I, I do I think it's it can be some parents take um ASD diagnoses really well and it's really beneficial for the child um but some parents can find it a harder process can't they yeah. definitely um so I also think it's really useful for parents to seek out support groups and for you know to talk to somebody else who's going through perhaps the diagnostic process or to speak to another parent who's also had their child diagnosed I think that's really beneficial to speak to somebody who understands someone who's been through it because oh, it can definitely. be a really challenging time you can say that they're not yeah, alone for exactly example. Can bring yeah, that into the perspective yeah. yeah and is there sort of like is there a process of um because I've always thought that maybe parents may have a like a an expectation or they're expecting to do certain things with their children and is there a process where they have to kind of maybe um maybe manage those expectations a little bit better yes probably yeah. <laughs> i think if we look at some of the so if we look at and i'm obviously not a pediatrician but i worked in i contracted to the nhs for for pediatric assessments yeah. years ago um so i work really closely with with a lot of pediatricians um who are lovely and their assessments are very different to what perhaps mine would be so it's has this child met this 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 and this and they're looking at it from a very medical point of view mm -hmm. and it's perhaps not looking at the parameters can be a little bit different for all children, whether they are on the spectrum or they're not on the spectrum, we just need that little bit of leeway almost to allow children within their own environments, their own context of, of parenting, etc., just to be able to progress at their own pace in many ways. And then if we do get to ages, for example, they say, I say they say, that the criteria is sort of, 18 months is someone walking by 18 months or are they not walking by 18 months if they're not walking by 18 months then then it's a red flag um are they speaking by two years as in a meaningful single word not mama or dada are they saying a, a, an actual word such as juice or no by the age of two if they're not it's seen as a, a bit of a red flag but that one i think needs to be aired with a bit of caution because children do speak at different times mm. so looking at those 
milestones is really important when they're very, very young. But just giving a little bit of leeway, depending on their environment, depending on parenting, depending on brothers, sisters and wider family, just to allow that development to happen. I think it's the patience, though, as well, that it must take, (laughs) um, especially when you're going through that process yourself. Like you said, it can take a long time to gather all this information. And at the same time, you've also got to be patient, thinking to yourself, well, I was hoping that by this stage we'd be doing this or that, but then you've got to, you just got to hold it in and be like, well, I've just got to wait until they're ready, like you say. Absolutely. With those very sort of typical milestones, definitely. Um, you really do patience is key if you're seeing many of the stereotypical behaviors that we talked about earlier then perhaps they're a little bit more along the lines of red flags yeah and we um we explore all the motor milestones during the adir assessment which i do and like you were saying we always give a bit of leeway and look at what else is going on around that so like you were saying siblings and um, we also look at if there's been a loss of language skills or other more general skills at any point um, as we were saying earlier yeah. so we look at that as well mm-hmm. Absolutely. which ones are the misconceptions or the fears that parents have when you bring the diagnosis forward so you do all the assessment everything is done it's clear that it's a child that is on the spectrum or you can say is autistic now you pass the information to the family what you see from the families or where is the fear the fears that come along with with that diagnosis which i guess they will come few of them absolutely it really yeah you can see just how much it impacts a lot of people and their fears are about their children's future um or if they're adults it's about their future as well whether it's a parent who's with them whether it's a partner it's about the fears for their future um how they're going to manage in school how they're going to manage at university how they're going to manage in work and for me it's always been about using strengths everyone has strengths everybody has difficulties doesn't matter whether they're on the spectrum they're neurotypical it makes no difference everyone has difficulties so it's using those strengths and putting it in a really positive way and saying, well, actually, your child is really good at this, 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 and giving them that sort of positive way of looking at things and explaining it the way that I mentioned earlier around Windows, Android and yeah. Apple. That really helps people in order to determine, actually, it's not something that's wrong because it isn't. It is a different way of, of looking at the world. Of understand, yeah. Absolutely, in a different way of understanding. And sometimes it's not actually about... And this is going to sound very... Um, this is what a lot of parents have said to me. I need you to fix my child. Mm-hmm. And it isn't about fixing a child. It's not about fixing anybody. It's about helping parents or partners understand that actually... This person loves this, 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 and this. Let's use this because that's really going to be useful to harness moving forward. And fixing someone isn't something we'd ever want to do because we don't want to, for want of a better word, fix someone who's neurodiverse. Yeah, it's who they are, it's essentially. They are. And you'll, you'll be trying it's to change, take it's that changing away. the way they Absolutely. are. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it would be the same thing with someone neurotypical. They have anxiety, they have depression. We don't want to, we want to help and we want them to sort of 
learn how to sort of help themselves as well. So it's about using those strengths that somebody has if they're on the spectrum, harnessing those, putting those into the curriculum. So if they only love trains or cars, which I appreciate is very stereotypical of very young sort of boys in, in many respects. But if they don't want to read about other things, then buy train books and let's yes. use that. And use that as a catalyst for other learning tools Absolutely. that they can use. Yes, and certainly. make the learning around what they're interested in. Because it isn't that they're, like we were saying earlier, it's not a disability in, in that respect. It's about using their abilities to really help them, whether it's academically, whether it's in work, whatever capacity, whether it's at home, and really using that to, to help them feel that they're okay as they are because that's the most important thing certainly I think acceptance is a, is a big thing as well they, they just want to be accepted among their peers and things and I remember when I worked in a school with children that had um, autism the amount of information they knew about the subject that they love was incredible and, it, and so you can see the capacity there you can see that they have the ability to yes. to, to learn and, and to, to, to know things but at, at that stage in their life it was just a very specific subject and that's okay yeah. because at least it demonstrates the capacity is there oh absolutely and thinking about some when I assessed probably about nine years ago now he ran his own company um was very very academic um computer based company um was brilliant at the technical side of it and came to me and said well apparently they don't like me <laughs> <laughs> so it's not they don't like you but let's see what's going on and when he realized that actually what was going on was autism spectrum he said okay so I've got something to work with and he went back and he said, right, I've got autism spectrum. It's going to change something. <laughs> Bless him. But actually what it did do was enable other people to say, ah, okay. So perhaps we need to be a little bit more accommodating because it's not your blunt with us. It's not your abrupt with us. It's just your way of communicating. It's like we were expecting an Android phone to work as an iPhone. Mm. Yeah, and it's like, that's the way we were clashing. <laughs> Okay, so uh, based on what we were discussing, we just wanted to also get your views and opinions about the extended family and how um, and how that contributes to the individual child, because um, you've got the grandparents, you've got the aunties, the uncles, and sometimes, I suppose, when a diagnosis comes along, they might decide that they want to have an active uh, role in, in what's going on in the process, and um, just tell us a little bit about like how that is in your experience. It can be so beneficial. It really can, because... Sometimes, um, and this is just some examples that I can think of, when there isn't a diagnosis in place, and for me it's not about a label as such, it's about an understanding. And if you can understand what's going on for someone, then you can, you can help to make things a lot easier for that person, but also their families. Sometimes, from, from people I've worked with in the past, grandparents, for example, can be a little bit more reticent about a diagnosis, or a little bit more sort of, oh no, couldn't possibly and actually working with them so they're on the same page is so important because you do need everyone on the same page you need that sort of collaborative support for a child or an adult so they don't feel there is something wrong because there isn't 
it's about working together for the needs of that person and being able to facilitate the best you can an extended family whether it's aunts uncles grandparents cousins even you know friends family friends is so important in enabling someone to feel accepted and know that actually they are okay as they am as they are sorry because that's really really key and they're getting supported as well and i suppose does consistency come into play there as well like if everyone you know responds in the same manner obviously they're going to feel more comfortable i guess and so it's good to communicate that with with the family oh it is absolutely because and certainly not everybody but a lot of people on the spectrum um are very routine based and if that gets disrupted it doesn't always go particularly well. Mm-hmm. So it's about family recognising that, wider family, friends, thinking ahead sometimes, thinking, well, actually, if I change this last minute, that's not going to go particularly well. So let's see if we can find something that's a better alternative mm-hmm. if we really have to cancel that. So it's always looking to mitigate what's going to impact on somebody, particularly children, definitely, because you don't want them feeling that they're reacting because a lot of children do reflect after and think oh and feel quite guilty so it's about being able to work together to mitigate any difficulties but actually to support that person to make sure that that consistency is managed in the way that is going to benefit the family and i guess to understand what's going on because if we're having a meltdown it's not because the child is naughty it's not because parents are no uh, severe enough or authoritarian enough and they just need to because sometimes it's like just need to be firm and then say to him this is right this is wrong or her and it's like actually not because of that it's because of what we're saying something has changed his routine or her routine that set them up for a crisis and this is the way to say I cannot cope with change this is how it comes out just understand let it happen we'll manage as we can it's like you say, it's as well understanding or the surrounding understanding why things happen and like what is behind that. It's not only a naughty child or a parent that is not being a, a good parent because I think parents feel quite judged. It's yeah. always you like very the, the, the eyes yeah. looking at you and you're not parenting appropriately or, yeah. or doing things right. And I think that's another thing that, to point on as well that the extended family support is very good just for the parents as well as well as a child just to, to make because sometimes as a parent you need to go to somebody and be like am I doing the right thing here? You, you need you need you that need kind of that kind of yeah. just maybe just discussing it to yourself is is enough but sometimes you just need that clarification that you're because no one's a professional parent everyone everyone just has yeah. to just kind of oh, wing it children you know? don't come with a manual exactly yes <laughs> they really yeah. don't they should have they should they should be so great it's quite a shock uh, isn't it we're yeah. like oh hello <laughs> yes but they don't come with a manual and every child's so different and if you have one parent who is really authoritarian and another parent who isn't and we come across it quite a lot don't we and frustration as any parent it does happen and it's not because a child is being naughty they're not being difficult it's because a child's trying to communicate to you if it's non-verbally they're communicating and a meltdown is a form of communication to come through definitely absolutely Mm. and that can be in various formats of completely shutting down hiding under a weighted blanket and not materializing for the next two hours or it can be what we often see also rocking backwards and forwards hands over ears screaming crying repetitive noises 
And that's a form of communication. It's a way of saying, I'm really unhappy and I don't know what to do because I can't cope with my emotions. And quite often with autism spectrum, it's very hard for someone, child or adult, to differentiate between their emotions and identify what's going on for them. Because, for example, excitement and anxiety, it can often feel the same inside. Or they might not feel anything inside, so it's more intellectualized. Mm. So in that context, it's very difficult for someone to be able to interpret that. So explaining it's virtually impossible. So having someone who is authoritarian and someone who isn't, it's a lot of inconsistencies of being on the same page along with wider family. It's really essential. So for all the parents that they are listening today, um, what advice do you have for parents who suspect their child might have autism, but they are unsure with what steps they need to take? So it really depends, varies on age, definitely. Mm -hmm. So speak to the school, ask the school if they have any concerns, Mm -hmm. and quite often schools will raise any concerns they do have. Mm -hmm. Read the school reports, just look and see whether there's any consistencies between school and home or whether there's any vast inconsistencies between school and home because we also have to consider masking. Um, Girls, often their presentation is later than boys. Girls do tend to mask more, so taking that into consideration. Boys tend to display more behaviours, perhaps much younger. Um, Girls typically can be much more in line with sort of 9 to 13 mm-hmm. as that developmental gap starts to widen between them and their peers and they start to think well why am I interest different why is this different why is that different so look out for those things look out for children particularly if they're really drained when they get home and their emotions they're either hiding or they're letting everything out and they've been containing all day so just let them talk But keep an eye on it and see if it's a pattern because when children get home, that's quite a key indicator of any difficulties, whether it's spectrum or not. Key indicator, there might be something happening. If, like we said earlier, birthday parties are quite key, family gatherings, just watch, just observe and also talk to your child. If you think they're struggling with something, just ask them and ask some questions about who did you play with today one thing I do with my children every day after school is say what did you do today that was really fun I don't ask them what they did today or how their day was I always say to them what did you do today that was really fun and two of my children are neurodiverse so using that sort of framework just enables their children to say oh okay so I did this this and this and you'll start to pick up on patterns And picking up on patterns is really, really important, whether it's negative or positive. Mm -hmm. Because if there's nothing positive with a question that's framed positively, start looking at what might else be going on and talk to the teachers, definitely. And talk to the children. Ask them about who they played with, what they did, how they sort of communicated with people. Questions around that would be really helpful. Okay. So what are the key takeaways you would like our listeners, probably for parents this time, to take away mm-hmm. after this episode and the importance of early diagnosis um, and everything that we talked through? So key key things, so one, two, three, as many as you want. I guess key things would be um, 
if an early diagnosis is achievable and appropriate, definitely do it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Because the earlier you get that support in place, the better. When you're having an assessment done, make sure the assessment meets the needs. Mm -hmm. And that can take research. It really can. Clinicians do assessments very differently and make sure that the assessment is done to an extent that covers all the areas we talked about earlier. It's really important for the needs of school and, and sort of moving forward. And one of the main things I think for a parent is try not to feel so guilty mm-hmm. because a lot of parents feel so guilty and that can be around, I didn't get my child diagnosed early enough, but actually how could you know because you don't specialise in this area or, or put it, whatever reasons or they've tried and it hasn't worked out. Mm-hmm. And you can support a child moving forward at whatever age they're diagnosed. I appreciate earlier is good, but the guilt does happen and it's trying not to beat yourself up if it wasn't straight away or you didn't pick up on things straight away because as parents, like we said, there is no manual. Mm-hmm. Every child's different. And autism spectrum, it's why we're so extensively trained to diagnose it. And parents aren't. And even between professionals, we don't always agree with the diagnosis. Absolutely. So So it's about being kinder to themselves Mm -hmm. and work with your children. Work with them after a diagnosis. Learn about them. Research. Ask questions. Work with therapists. Work with autism coaches. Work with psychologists. Learn as much as you can about the diagnosis for your individual child because then you can put that support in place. Okay. That's great. Right. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, Thank you for having us. We will add all your details, your contact details for our listeners if someone would like to contact you. Thank you. Um, So it will be there. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Kat and Holly, for coming today and visit us. Your information was really appreciated. And we would like just to remind our listeners that we offer open free sessions. If anyone needs help every month, if you need more information, just visit our website. Until next time, stay Stay on on the the spectrum. spectrum.